African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Well, thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Uh, you're listening to us uh, on uh, uh, Channel 802 on uh, DSTV on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. That's our shortwave service. Well, today on our program, we preview the upcoming CITES 17th conference that will be taking place in South Africa, Johannesburg, from the 24th of September through to the 5th of October. CITES is really looking at... Uh, uh, international trade in endangered species of wild fauna and flora. So we'll be looking at that. Let's get our news quickly from Anne Musa before we get into the topic. In the headlines... Gabon warns opposition leader against violence ahead of the Constitutional Court ruling. Nigeria would welcome UN help in negotiating Chibok school girls' release and rights expert warned childhood exposure to chemicals and pollution must stop. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. Government officials in Gabon have warned opposition leader Jean Ping that he risks arrest if unrest resumes when the Constitutional Court rules on his challenge to last month's presidential election outcome. The Central African government says six people died in riots that erupted this month when results from the election handed victory to incumbent President Ali Bongo. Ping, a former African Union Commission chief, says as many as 100 people were killed in the violence and he filed a request for a recount alleging fraud in one of Bongo's strongholds. Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari says Nigeria would welcome United Nations representatives as intermediaries in any talks with Boko Haram on the release of about 200 schoolgirls kidnapped from the northeastern village of Chibok in 2014. Buhari was addressing the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon at a meeting on the sidelines of the annual UN General Assembly in New York. Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe says the biggest impediment to achieving the country's sustainable development is 16 years of punitive sanctions. He was speaking at the UN General Assembly in New York, where leaders are reviewing progress on the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development as part of this year's general debate. Mugabe says ongoing sanctions against Zimbabwe could threaten sustainable development in the country. Those who have imposed these sanctions would rather have us pander to their interests at the expense of the basic needs of the majority of our people. 
as long as these economic and financial sanctions remain in place, Zimbabwe's capacity to fully and effectively implement Agenda 2030 will be deeply curtailed. Saudi-led airstrikes have killed 20 civilians in the rebel-held Yemeni port city of Hodidia hours after the rebels celebrated the second anniversary of their siege of the capital. The raids hit the Sak al-Hunod district of the Red Sea port. The strikes were also reported by the rebel administration in the capital, Sana'a. And finally, a United Nations rights investigators warned that exposure to toxic chemicals and pollution trigger a silent pandemic of childhood diseases and disabilities, which should be tackled at a global level. The warning to member states and business from UN Special Rapporteur Baskut Tanka comes ahead of a meeting of the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child in Geneva. Daniel Johnson reports. The special rapporteur's findings highlight how at least 6,000 children in the U.S. town of Flint, Michigan, were exposed to high levels of lead in drinking water and how pesticides continue to kill and injure children who are either involved in child labor or poisoned by contaminated food. Recapping the top stories, Gabon warns opposition leader against violence ahead of the Constitutional Court ruling. Nigeria would welcome UN help in negotiating the release of the Chibok schoolgirls. And rights expert warns childhood exposure to chemicals and pollution must stop. From the 15th of August, join Channel Africa at 900 Central African time from Monday to Thursday every week for the book reading. A Vision of Paradise by Keizen Yatsumba. That's Monday to Thursday at 900 Central African time. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Thank you for joining us right here on our frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. If you're listening to us on uh, DSTV, you're listening to us on Channel 802, and uh, you can also listen to us on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm sure if you're a listener on a constant basis on our program that you already know all these uh, platforms. Uh, Today we're looking at uh, CITES, uh, that's the Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species of Wildlife, Fauna and Flora, which hosts its 17th 17th, conference from the 24th of September to the 5th of October, this time taking place right here on the African continent in uh, Johannesburg itself. During the conference, the delegates uh, will collectively evaluate progress made since 2013 at the last conference. They will further take more decisions that will be aimed to ending the illicit wildlife trafficking uh, problem that we're having not only on the continent but worldwide. The conference will also deliberate on matters around bringing additional species under the CITES trade controls. African Dialogue will be broadcasting live in the next week uh, from the conference in Johannesburg uh, to actually find out what's actually happening in the conference itself. Now joining us is uh, Kelvin Ali who is the acting vice president of the Animal 
Animal Welfare and Conservation Program, which is uh, uh, part of the International Fund for uh, Animal Welfare. We also have Jason Bell from that organization. He's the regional director of Southern Africa, looking at elephants. And uh, we also have uh, Elbi uh, Modise, who is the spokesperson of South Africa's Department of Environmental Affairs. Let me start with government on this particular uh, matter. Uh, Thank you, Mr. Mudisa, for giving us your time. In terms of CITES being hosted in South Africa, is this significant for us, especially looking at today? uh, It is World Rhino Day, and we know that's one of the endangered species in our region. Indeed, I mean, today is World Rhino Day, and South Africa joins the global community in recognizing the work that's been done to also protect the rhino. As a South Africa, this day comes on the eve of the hosting of the CITES COP17. And for us, it's also an opportunity to share with the global community the work that we've done uh, from the time when we brought rhino from almost the brink of extinction. Uh, And then, of course, we'll use CITES to also share with our partners internationally what we're doing at home, but also come up with a common approach, largely because we realize the fact that uh, it is the wildlife trade it's not something that concerns South Africa only. It's an international phenomenon. Well, in terms of uh, the themes that are coming out uh, this year, what do you think will be pivotal uh, in terms of the continent, albeit in terms of the environmental field and in terms of the issues that uh, really surround themselves around uh, uh, biodiversity and also making sure that uh, we uh, protect our wildlife on the continent? Look, I think the, the, the issue that we need to mention is the fact that uh, for us as South Africa, the, the issues of um, bringing communities into the work that we do are pretty important. They're important because at the end of the day, the work that we do as Africa, the work that we do as South Africa, the work that we do globally, they are all about the ultimate end. Communities and people are central to them, but of course it's important to acknowledge the fact that it's conservation that we do for the current generation, for the next generation as well. The, the other uh, thematic area is the whole issue around, I mean, there are some countries that are uh, you know, pushing for the opening of trade. We, as South Africa, we worked to cabinet, we engaged cabinet on this matter after a, pro- a program that was led by the Committee of Inquiry, and that particular Committee of Inquiry set to, to, came up with three different options. Cabinet said we shall not go for an opening of trade because according to cabinet, we need to have make sure that we've got certain prerequisites met first before we could even think of uh, opening of trade. So, so for us, it's an opportunity also to to talk to the successes that we've recorded in terms of the the, the, the protection of the the Cape Zebra, uh, the work that we've done in that regard, and how it all links up to our successful track record in terms of conservation. I think at home, South Africa, we really we have very robust legislative program in place. We've got very robust policy programs in place. Uh, but, of course, we operate within a global uh, village. Uh, and, of course, the successes that you record at home sometimes tend to attract some foreign individuals who, as you would have seen with the rhino, end up being at the forefront of the culture. 
Let me move that to our other guests and uh, bring in uh, Kelvin uh, Ali, uh, who is the acting vice president of uh, uh, the Animal Welfare and Conservation Program in IFO. Uh, Kelvin, thank you for giving us your time. What do you think is going to be standing out in these coming next two weeks uh, in CITES? I know that there's a whole lot of conversations that are still underway, and it's a huge issue that is actually going to be taking place in terms of conservation. And just the interactions within the trade in uh, their environmental sector, Kelvin? Yes, good morning. Thanks for having me. I, I think one of the things that's really going to be important to watch is going to be see, to see how the global community responds uh, to the, um, the number of issues that's on the agenda for this CITES conference of the parties. Um, I think, you know, from all reports, uh, this meeting is going to be one of the largest meetings ever, uh, not in terms of only attendance, uh, by the number of, of, of international governments or parties to the convention, but also the number of species on the agenda. There are a number of species of both plants and animals uh, for which uh, stronger protection measures are being put forward. So it's going to be interesting to see where the global, global community uh, uh, comes forward in terms of how they respond to the requests uh, by some key member countries uh, seeking added protections for high-value species in trade. Um, you know, you mentioned the rhino. Um, there's also the African elephant. There are issues around African gray parrots, African lions, African pangolins. So there are a number of species on the agenda, including a number of various species of sharks. So one of the things to watch is to see whether or not uh, there is a stronger protection that comes out of that uh, of that um, of the convention for this. Um, at the last conference of the parties in Bangkok. Uh, there was uh, movements that were made towards, um, you know, getting uh, countries in Africa and Asia, key countries, to uh, establish and develop what you call national ivory action plans. There were some countries that were identified as problematic countries as it pertains to the illegal trade in ivory and, and illegal killing of elephants. And these countries, there's an expectation that they were uh, supposed uh, within the last three years to develop plans that would seek to protect African elephants within their own border and promote trans-border, cross-border international cooperation. So on that particular issue on the National Ivory Action Plans, it will be important to see what progress has been made both uh, nationally by some countries and both regionally as well. Well, let me move that to the chief of the legal and compliance unit at the CITES Secretariat, that Juan uh, Carlos uh, Valquez. Juan, thank you for giving us your time. For you, what is actually going to be the main theme this year around? We're looking ahead before uh, the the conference itself and the convention itself. This is a big year uh, for the conference because so many conversations will be actually be put on the table. Your thoughts around what we can expect, uh, Juan? Thank you, Benjamin. Uh, this is the largest remaining of its kind that will consider 62 proposals to change scientific trade controls affecting close to 500 species. So that change trade controls uh, affect the African elephant, the white rhinoceros, lions, pumas, pangolins, two species of sharks, rays. Mm-hmm. Uh, vicuñas, crocodiles, uh, so you have 500 species that will be affected by the decisions made at this, at this meeting here in South Africa. Mm. And, and in terms of the talking points, Juan, what do you think w- w- will be the main talking points? Well, uh, this is a species-based uh, treaty, so we are going to talk about the conservation of t- status of this species and which one could be traded 
you know that we have 7 billion people consuming biodiversity every day, so the talking points are the trade in ivory, trade in rhino horn, trade in vicuña fiber, which is the finest fiber in the world, trade in, in uh, pangolins uh, for medicinal purposes, if this is going to be allowed or stopped, uh, and so on with great parrots. South Africa is a great trader of, of these great parrots from Central Africa, uh, crocodiles. Um, so the main point will be around the trade rules to regulate the international trade in these species. Well, I'm going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back to our other guests. Stay on the line, everybody. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back to some other themes that we might see at the CITES, uh, uh, which is going to be taking place in Johannesburg uh, starting on Saturday, actually. And it's going to be uh, almost a two-week conference and we'll be there for the two weeks broadcasting twice, uh, once on the first week and also on the second week of the conference. We're asking the question on our social Social media platforms at Channel Africa One and at African Dialogue. Maybe you can be part of the conversation there. What is the best solution to saving the white rhino? Remember, you can tweet Channel Africa One or at Africa uh, African Dialogue uh, at African Dialogue. That's our other handle. Uh, give us your thoughts there. As today it is World Rhino Day. Hey, let's take a quick break and we'll be back. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You're with me, Benjamin Moshatama on African Dialogue. And today we're looking at CITES, which is a multilateral treaty uh, convention that is aimed to protect uh, endangered plants and animals. And it's happening right here on our continent this year uh, in Johannesburg, South Africa. And uh, the big issue is that issue of uh, trade controls, especially the big conversation happening around the issue of ivory and regulating uh, the selling of ivory on the continent because we know uh, the elephants and rhinos are becoming a very much endangered species and there's a big concern in the international community not just from uh, South Africa or parts of the African continent but even right here uh, the other parts of the world it's a big concern. I want to come uh, to Jason Bell who's the regional director of Southern Africa and uh, he deals with uh, the elephants area and he's part of the international fund for animal welfare jason it's good to speak to you uh tell us a little bit about your thoughts around the issue of trade controls especially when it comes to the very sensitive area of ivory yeah thank you very much benjamin and uh, thank you for having me on the show and um, 
Yeah, I just want to quickly take an opportunity to uh, commend uh, the South African government and uh, Mr. Medici and his team in pulling off uh, a really, really good uh, pre- preparations for this meeting. Um, I'm really proud to be uh, South African and to, to be a part of the COP in Johannesburg, so that's fantastic. Sure. Um, yeah, um, I think, you know, again, elephants will be in the spotlight um, at the COP. Um, as you know, there are uh, a number of proposals on the table. Uh, we have a proposal from a number of uh, West and Central African elephant range states, um, a couple of East African elephant range states, which is looking to put uh, place elephants, uh, the elephant populations that are currently on Appendix 2 of CITES back on Appendix 1. And then we have, you know, two proposals on the table from Namibia. Can, can you explain what that, what that means, that Appendix 1 and Appendix 2, just for our listeners so they understand that differentiation, Jason? Yeah, look, within CITES, within the CITES regulatory framework, Appendix 1 is the highest level of protection that is afforded by the okay. Convention okay. Um, and has very, very strict uh, measures with respect to uh, trade in, uh, in CITES-listed species. Um, Appendix 2 um, is a lower level of protection that the uh, Convention offers um, and, uh, and allows trade, but under very, you know, also regulated, uh, within a regulated framework. So... You know, the, the ivory trade ban was put in place in 1989, and we saw partial lifting of that ban in 1997 when uh, uh, Namibia, Botswana, um, and Zimbabwe were allowed to downlist their populations, and then South Africa downlisted its population further down the line. And subsequent to that, we've had two one-off uh, stockpile sales of ivory to uh, Japan and to China um, over the years. Um, and so, again, now we, you know, we're stuck at a, at a COP where you have one side of the, de- the debate um, asking, uh, requesting that elephants receive the highest level of protection. And then you have, you know, Southern African countries, in, the, in particular Namibia um, and Zimbabwe in this case, asking uh, for regulated trade in, in ivory, so for societies to allow them to have regulated trade in ivory. Now, it's always a very polarized debate and mm-hmm. become highly politicized, but I think the really important thing as far as elephants are concerned at this meeting is that there are, another, there are a number of other really important issues that are up for discussion. And one of them is, and, and Kelvin alluded to this, is this issue of the unregulated domestic markets. And so, you know, besides the fact that there's this argument about whether if you put ivory back into the marketplace through legal means, what, what effect does that have on illegal trade, etc.? Mm. What we do know from the data that's been presented through programs like ETIS, the Elephant Trade Information System, is that... Unregulated domestic markets play a huge role in fueling the illicit trade in ivory. So at this meeting, there's a good opportunity for the Saudi's parties to look at this issue and to make some serious uh, decisions around closing unregulated domestic markets um, all around the world. Mm. So that's really important. And then there's some other really important issues as well. Um, For example, uh, we have this uh, existing framework under CITES, which is the African Elephant Action Plan, Mm. Mm. which was agreed to many years ago by all African elephant range states, not only to deal with issues related to trade mm. um, and to poaching and illicit trade, but also dealing with things like human-elephant conflict, how to engage communities appropriately in conservation, mm. Mm. all that kind of stuff. And a fund was set up to, to help support the implementation of that plan. And I'm hoping at this particular COP there will be a lot of attention focused on on really kind of getting to grips with implementing measures that were adopted under the framework of that plan. I think this is going to be really, really important. 
Thank you so much uh, for that uh, uh, insight, uh, Jason. I want to come back to you, Albi Mudis, in terms of looking at this issue of um, uh, the ivory trade. Uh, where does the African, uh, South African rather, government, uh, what is South Africa's government's uh, position on this particular issue? Albi, are you there? Albi, are you there with us? The South African government subscribes to what we refer to as um, sustainable utilization of natural resources. Now, th- that effectively means that we need to utilize rich natural resources in such a manner that not pose the danger to the population as, uh, as we have them now. Um, mm-hmm. the, the fact that we are not going to be putting forward a proposal for trade, sure. it does not in any way mean that we are opposed to trade. What it effectively means is that, as Cabinet had made it clear, we are not at this point ready yet to, as South Africa, put forward a proposal for trade. Mm-hmm. And in, in, in another yes. area... So, so effectively, sure. I mean, the, the, the work that we've been doing has been largely to engage widely with the, the pro-use group and the anti-use group. Sure. Those were efforts get towards uh, soliciting input and buy-in from the different sector players within the environment space with a view to arrive at a, at a very sound policy direction. And Cabinet has given us the marching order to say much of the understand the challenges we face in terms of poaching. Mm. They believe strongly that all of the prerequisites have to be, have to be met. The security mm. elements, the laws that we put in place in terms of biodiversity management plans, mm. the engagement with international parties with the view to close foreign markets, uh, especially within, within that phase of illicit wildlife trade, but also ensure that at home we close all of those markets and all of those loopholes. Uh, and, and once we've done that, then we can start looking at, amongst other things, how much of stockpile is within state control mm-hmm. and how much of the stockpile is in the hands of the private of the private uh, rhino owners. Because for you to even begin to talk about trade, mm. you need to know what you're going to trade and how much you have and where, which market is going to be ready to receive that. Mm. So all of these things, according to Cabinet, have to be met by people who could even think about trade. However, that doesn't necessarily mean we are opposed to trade as, 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 a, as a matter of principle. It's just a question of, uh, at this particular point, we're not ready. Mm. Let me come to you. Um uh, Juan, in terms of other areas that we could be looking at, and I know biodiversity is one that's also an area that is very important, especially at this time where we're seeing this problem of, uh, uh, you know, climate uh, uh, unpredictability because of the issue of climate change that is also taking center stage in terms of the in- environmental uh, industry. Uh, are we going to see some other conversations on that front on how to maintain biodiversity within the context of climate change and the strains that we're seeing there, Juan? Uh, you are right, Benjamin. And yeah, we have several proposals uh, that discuss the role of these species in the ecosystem. And I would like to say it's not only about animals. We have also some timber proposals that are very interesting, including the rosewood uh, timber, which is a precious timber in the international markets. We have several species concerning the marine environment. All these trout and, and rice uh, species that are for uh, discussion. And the scientists' parties will consider as well something very important that is uh, decisions on combating corruption and cyber, cyber crime, the better use of modern forensics and, and uh, all these techniques to investigate anti money laundering and, mm. uh, and to enhance cross border cooperation 
in combating illegal wildlife trade as one of the threats for the conservation of biodiversity in their ecosystem. So there is a discussion on how to harmonize species conservation with ecosystem-based conservation because these species are like ambassadors or, or flagship species that if we protect rhinos, we are protecting the children, we are protecting big areas, and we are protecting local people as well. So yeah. this issue of species, people, ecosystem is at the heart of this, of this meeting. Mm. That's very interesting, that element of the whole ecosystem with the inclusion of human development, Calvin. I'm sure that's also going to be center stage, as was highlighted when we started the program by South Africa's spokesperson of the uh, Department of Environmental Affairs in the country, saying that the integration of uh, communities around um, national parks and also private uh, 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 animal parks, or uh, also these uh, uh, fauna and flora, uh, parks is something that's also becoming uh, very much center stage on how we actually uh, move forward with the uh, conservation mandate. Your thoughts around that? I, I, I completely agree. I mean, I think it's also, I mean, just to uh, pick, pick up where uh, Juan Carlos left, I mean, one of the things to his side is also be looking at, you know, the issue of sightings and livelihoods. How does livelihoods factor into the debate? You know, you're going to have discussions around listing species on the appendices, giving further protection to species. How does that impact, you know, communities that are living uh, in and around um, protected areas or non-protected areas um, with wildlife. And there's also discussions around livelihoods and food security in the, in the, um, within the context of the discussions that's taking place. Um, I, I, I also want to emphasize, you know, that, you know, one of the things that, 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 I, that, that is going to come out and, and as, as a potential area of discussion is the issue of how you engage actively in efforts to raise awareness uh, about the problems and risk associated with wild, wildlife trafficking, not just in the issue of the source countries in Africa, but looking at supply and transit countries and demand countries. And on the agenda, there are some documents that specifically speaks to the issue of demand reduction strategies to combat illegal trade in CITES listed species. Here we are speaking specifically uh, consumer destinations, end user countries, where um, you know the illegal and uh, wildlife products are uh, ending up. Because as we know that you know, yes, there's an issue with um, at the source, and I think that uh, uh, my colleague uh, from from South Africa um, and even Juan Carlos and my colleague Jason talked a little bit about the issue of enforcement and compliance and addressing issue of, of anti-poaching and the African Elephant Action Plan and ensuring that the priorities that have been laid out. Um, where are we on the progress? with some of these priorities. But I think on the issue of how do we address the issue of these destination markets in Asia, um, do we need mm-hmm. to do more to address the is- issue of, of targeting particularly behavior that's driving the illegal consumption of, of wildlife products globally? And that goes for both mm-hmm. marine and terrestrial. Um, so just to reinforce Juan Carlos' point as well on the issue of both, there's a number of issues on the agenda relating to uh, tropical timber species as well, um, which, uh, which also has, uh, has, has an impact on on the protection of global biodiversity. Mm. Well, I'm going to take a quick break and then we're going to wrap up this conversation. We're just setting the pace for you, uh, if you are a listener. We're going to be broadcasting from next week uh, and also we'll get a lot of updates from our different services here at Channel Africa from French and other uh, languages in terms of what's happening at the CITES um, gathering that will be taking place in Johannesburg uh, this year in South Africa. But we're also asking this uh, pivotal question, what do you think is the solution 
solution to saving the white rhino. I know that is the big conversation today because it is a World Rhino Day. Give us your thoughts on Twitter at Channel Africa One or at African Dialogue. We want to hear from you there. Remember, you can also SMS us your thoughts on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero, or you can email us at info at channelafrica.org. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back. Change your game. Your game. Be the your voice game. of young African entrepreneurs. Change your game. Your game. A program that promotes open discussion. Change your game. We bring social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the global entrepreneurship ecosystem. Our mission is to produce relevant and vibrant content and conduct interviews with dynamic stakeholders within the African entrepreneurial ecosystem that informs educates and entertains and empowers young African entrepreneurs. Change your game. Change your game. Empowering the next generation of outstanding African entrepreneurs. Tune in on Fridays, 1000 hours to 10.45 a.m. Central African time. And on Saturdays, 1300 hours to 1400 hours Central African time. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You are listening to Channel Africa. This is African Dialogue with me, Benjamin Mushatama. African Dialogue, where we bring you the big uh, conversations taking place on uh, the continent of Africa. From Monday to Thursday, we... uh connect you with experts and discuss some of the pivotal issues and then yesterday and today we were looking at environmental issues just because of just the momentum of things building up uh, to the society's uh, uh, gathering which is taking place in Johannesburg. If you're just joining us on the line we've got Calvin Ali who is uh, an acting vice president of Animal Welfare and Conservation Program at the International Fund for Animal Welfare. We've got Jason Bell, Region Director of Southern Africa for Elephants at the International Fund of of animal welfare as well. We've got Albi Mudise, who is South Africa's spokesperson for the Department of Environmental Affairs. Juan Carlos Valquez is the chief Le- chief of legal and compliance unit at the CITES Secretariat. And just uh, moving in terms of uh, the conversation we were having yesterday, and maybe I must uh, move this into this area, Albi, with you, in, in terms of integration that you were talking about with communities because in south africa people are asking that questions especially when it comes to our national parks especially when it comes to our private reserves how do communities benefit it's been a contentious issue for a very long time especially when it comes to also the indigenous peoples of uh, uh, our land such as the koi and the sand and how they are part of that space where are we getting with that particular conversation because it seems like we always come to a, a, a roadblock and we never move forward beyond seeing this integration unfold in a more progressive way. Your thoughts there, Albi? Last week, we, we celebrated what we call South African National Parks Week. National Parks Week is a week that we set aside uh, in September where communities from across the country, effectively, can visit any national park without paying any money. As long as you get to the national park, you produce your form of identification, you'll have free access to the park. Mm. That is one of the interventions that we have made as a as government to excite and also to get ordinary communities to get a, take a keen interest in our national park system. 
But also, actually today, it's the last day of what we call the People and Parks Conference mm. that's sitting in Midland. The People and Parks Conference came about as a result of the World Parks Congress of 2003 that met in Durban, where they discussed, among a whole range of other issues, how you get communities that would have been moved from their land to make way for the parks. For example, historically in South Africa, they are asking communities to have moved from areas that would have uh, been set aside for national parks. Mm. Now, post-94, in line with the, the new dispensation, the question that we asked ourselves was, how do we get other communities to move to get a uh, stake in the past? Are you going sure. to give the land back or are you going to allow them to arrive into what you will refer to as a core management framework? Sure. So that they begin to form part of the core management arrangement in those national parks while at the same time the parks continue to, to exist as they are. I'll be, how, how's that conversation going, especially the, the issue of co-management? Because that's very interesting and most of people have been kind of pro co-management of uh, communities and uh, uh, yes. the, the management of the parks. How's that conversation moving forward, Albi? Look, it's working out very well. I mean, earlier this year, President Jacob Zuma uh, visited a Kruger National Park where communities adjacent to those parks that would have made some claims into areas of the Kruger National Park where they were given some checks as part of the ongoing commercial or in uh, agreement with those communities. So uh, the, the trick is to ensure that at, at, at all times, mm. communities that are either living adjacent to the parks or communities that would have been initial owners of the land where the parks are, that they are drawn into that particular um, management uh, framework. But also in, 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 in terms of economic opportunities or job opportunities in the parks, how do you get young people in those communities to take mm. interest in, for an sure, example, sure. Uh, uh, different areas of work in the national parks, whether it's around uh, field ranger or management areas of work. So it's about integrating those communities in those parks in a way that is not just only about them observing foreign tourists coming into the parks and driving out of the parks, but then becoming an integral part in terms of the growth of the park, but also the growth of the rural economy as well. Mm -hmm. Let me come to you, Jason Bell. I want to move to this human element as well, because that's also a very interesting area where when we were talking about the human and element conflict areas there, I'm sure those are also contesting issues that will be part of the conversation. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I I think as LB says, I mean, gone are the days of looking at uh, conservation and protected area management in the vacuum. Um, you know, you have to engage communities. Uh, you have to engage them in a way that um, helps them mitigate uh, conflict with the wildlife that they're living with, and that's 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 a necessity. Um, so um, that's just what has to happen. Um, and you also have to engage communities now on the outskirts of parks and look at things like food security, alternative livelihoods, uh, poverty alleviation, all those types of things. So I think that now is the new trend in conservation. I think it is what we call the, the new age conservation is really involving communities. But as, as Calvin mentioned earlier, and I think it's important, is that we also have to look at the security of communities because, you sure, know, gone sure. are the days as well of sitting in a park and just protecting the park and using the stick approach. We have to engage communities in successful uh, enforcement programs, and I think we've seen a number of initiatives across Africa now where we see these things called community enforcement networks. We we see a number of very successful game scout programs where communities are actively engaged in actually protecting resources as well. And I think this is critical. So I think we're in a new era in conservation. It's exciting. Uh, People matter. Animals matter. Parks matter. And I think, you know, I, I... to, to Albie's point, I think South Africa is setting a really, really good example with the People in Parks program, the South African National Parks program. It's an amazing example 
of how to successfully engage communities in conservation programs. Mm. I'm also interested in the idea of seeing the rapid pace of industrialization that we're seeing on the continent. It's very not much very as fast-paced as the rest of the world, but it is taking place where we see industrialization encroach on environmental spaces. Juan Carlos, uh, what are your thoughts on, on that theme? Uh, because I'm sure it's going to also take center stage when it comes to international trends as well. That's right, and I, I will first echo what Albi, my good friend Albi Nobisi, was explaining about the role of local communities that are key to any conservation strategy to succeed. Mm. Uh, the local communities play a major role on that, and uh, they are the best guardians, but also traditional users of wildlife. And we need, when we talk about industrialization, to keep in mind what are the traditional uses of biodiversity that may be good for the development of the country, and, and how we can reconcile this, this, this industrialization uh, rapid uh, growth that is, is being experienced in, in Africa with the conservation and with the traditional uses of biodiversity because you also have good industries like tourism, for instance, that are benefit mm-hmm. from the existence of this wildlife. So uh, perhaps by industrializing the country too aggressively and destroying wildlife, you will lose some of your main assets uh, that position yourself in the global economy as a good destination uh, uh, country. Uh, so uh, there is always a, a difficult compromise, and on that we think that mainstreaming wildlife in development plans, talking uh, between ministries of environment and ministries of industry or trade or responsible for financing the countries is critical to incorporate the wildlife equation into any development strategy of the country. And this is why we are also insisting on how the planning aspects of wildlife are very important. We are going to discuss plans for elephants and ivory trains, mm, mm. um, plans for rhinos, plans for timber, and this should be mainstream in the biodiversity, national biodiversity action plans. Mm. It should be part of a bigger plan of the country. So this should be, be part of the national strategy, not be seen in isolation or as a marginal cute thing that we discuss outside of the strategic decisions mm, of mm. the country. Well, I'm going to wrap, have to wrap it up and I'm going to ask maybe for final um, sentiments or uh, maybe closing points from all of you. Let's start with you, Kelvin. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I really wanted to mention as well, I mean, we talk a lot about communities, but one of the things I think that's happening this time at the first ever at the CITES COP is empowering the next generation. There is a resolution that's on the table that talks about CITES and youth engagement, and it's pretty much being put forward by the government of South Africa and the United States. And that is has to do with a youth forum on people and wildlife that's currently being held here in Johannesburg by, by, by IFO, my organization, in collaboration with the, the South African Ministry of Environment um, and the, the Disney Conservation Fund. And, 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 I, and I say this because one of the things that, that we see with the Conference of the Parties and these conventions is that we always see the next generation is important in securing and protecting biodiversity. And this is one of the mm-hmm. first mm-hmm. At time we were looking at putting a resolution that speaks specifically to how we engage young people, how we educate them, how we connect them to conservation, how we ch- train them as conservation leaders, and how we use them and, and use their power and their energy 
uh, to engage in a forum like CITES. So this is one of the coolest things I think that's going to happen. So that's, I'm going to keep, keep that with my wrap-up in terms of making sure that we engage the young people in the context of the CITES discussion. I'll be in 30 seconds. Oh, tell us your final sentiments, your hopes. Albi, are you there? <laughs> I'm not sure. I think we lost Albi there. Sorry, I, I, I lost a bit, yes. Oh. Uh, yes, the, so the, the, the issue around empowering the next generation is quite an important one for us because much as we talk about uh, getting communities involved, we need to begin to also get young people into conservation space because at the ultimate end, we'll be handing over the world to the next generation and they should be the ones ready to take over when we are ready to, to hand over to them. So, it's an important element. So the role of communities, the role of young people, but also how they get involved in the poaching uh, activities in the national parks and the privately owned parks, the provincial parks, and just effectively being part of being at the forefront of conservation efforts in South Africa. Mm. Let me give Juan a final sentiment and then I'll come to you, Jason. Juan? Thank you, Benjamin. I, I think this is the one at least one of the most critical meetings of the treaty in the 43 years of history of the convention. So the decisions made here will have an impact for the next 10, 15 years. What we are going to decide on elephants, rhinos, timber, trucks will have a long-term impact. And I agree that the engagement of and empowerment of local communities is central. The youth uh, people as well. And uh, also a, a global uh, vision. Now we are entering into this globalization. Mm-hmm. Here our uh, decisions by in, in Kruger affect the markets in Beijing. Or, mm-hmm. and, and we need to connect the world around the, these decisions that will be made here sure. in these two weeks. Sure. Jason? Yeah, I mean, uh, for, you know, this is home turf uh, for CITES in South Africa, and I think it's a great opportunity for African countries to really start um, coming together on, on some of these issues. Often, like for example, with elephants, uh, the debate is highly polarized, but there are a lot of things that, that uh, countries do agree on. And it would be great, and um, we look at, for example, some of the pangolin proposals that are on the table, and we look at the... The, the, the various uh, countries that are that are co-proponents. I mean, it's interesting. It's kind of bridging the divide between the South and the East. And, and so I think there's a huge opportunity for, for Africa to stand together in unity and look at some of the issues that are important to the continent and not only to sovereign states. Mm, well, thank you to all our guests. Thank you for being patient with us and giving us so much insight on what we can expect from uh, the CITES uh, gathering. I want to also thank the spokesperson of South Africa's Department of Environmental Affairs. I think this is the the longest we've stayed with a spokesperson on the program. Uh, most of the time, they're very not available in the country. So, Albi, thank you for being one of those spokespersons who are available when we need to talk to them. Thank you for giving us your time and to the rest of our guests. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's how we wrap it up. It takes us to 11.45 Central African time. Uh, Wisani Matebula is coming in. He's got a slick, clean shirt today, and he's looking very fly, and he's going to give us our business news. I I thought he was the businessman walking in, but let's get our update there.
Thanks, Benjamin. Good morning. The Leading Africa Women Investment Conference is underway in London, organized by a UK-based development and consultancy firm. The conference is seen as a unique opportunity for global investors, including pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, private equity firms, asset managers, and uh, bankers, to hear about and access investments projects owned and managed by women in Africa. The aim of the meeting is to help women identify tangible investment opportunities owned and managed by women. An Egypt state grain buyer, the General Authority for Supply Commodities, has amended its tender booklet to reflect the country's change on ergot fungus policy to a tolerance level of 0.5%. GACSC tenders booklet is the document outlining terms and wheat specifications for its purchase tenders. Zambia Information and Communication Technology Authority has warned the users of Samsung Galaxy Note 7 cell phone to return them to any Samsung electronic service provider outlet in the country. The regulator says in order to ensure safety of the consumers, Zikta is urging all consumers with their Samsung Galaxy Note 7 to visit the authorized Samsung electronic service partner outlets in Zambia. Sihlezuma reports. In a press statement released and made available to Zambian Eye by Zikta, the regulatory board says that despite the product not yet being launched in Zambia, some users have bought it from other markets. Zikta is notifying the general public that Samsung Galaxy Note 7 has a factory defect as the affected device can overheat and pose a safety risk. Samsung Electronic Corporation has announced a recall of Samsung Galaxy Note 7 smartphones in countries where the device has been launched. Ghana, Kenya, Nigeria and South Africa are set to announce interest rate decisions this week in an environment marked by accelerating price growth and an economic slump in some countries. Politicians are also attempting to uh, prescribe policy in others. Tabisoluhugu has more. Analysts say while Nigeria's central bank will probably take more aggressive action, South Africa, Kenya and Ghana are set to keep rates on hold. The contrasting approaches underscore the difficult policy choices of facing African central banks as a slump in commodity prices and sluggish global demand continue to weigh on raw material exporters like South Africa and Nigeria as the continent's two largest economies. Tabi Solohoku for Channel Africa. There's dollars trading at 13.77 to the South African Rand at 10.40, Botswana Pula at 9.91, Zambian Kwacha also at 0.76 to the British Pound and 0.89 against the Euro. Commodities gold $1,332, platinum $1,052 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil at $46.46 per barrel. And that's how it's looking. Oh, well, it's time for us to get our sports. Fili Lingwati is standing by. First up in our sports update, we're serving off with uh, tennis. Uh, rather, it is cricket news. Bizhub Highfield Lions and South Africa A all-rounder Dwayne Pretoria says he's looking forward to seeing his dream of making his Proteas one-day international debut come true should he get the nod against Ireland on Sunday.
South Africa will play a once-off ODI against the Irish in preparation for their five-match upcoming ODI series against Australia starting on the 30th of September. Pretoria says he is raring to go. Obviously, I hope I make the side. I mean, that's the first priority. And then, obviously, enjoying the moment, training with the guys. I mean, it's a dream come true. I've really, obviously, dreamt about this moment for a long time in my life. So, it's, it's happened now, and I'm really, really fortunate and blessed to be in that position. And hopefully, I can make the most of it. Pretorias, who will be welcomed by a number of current and former teammates in the Pretorias setup, says he believes that he will play in his favor as he aims to find his feet quickly in the side. Definitely, it's a great opportunity. And what's nice about that whole situation is I'm going in the squad now, and luckily I know a few guys. If you go into a squad and you know no one and it's just you, it's, I think it's a bit daunting. But I know Mori is going to be there. I know Tembe is going to be there. KJ, I've played with him. Mackie, the batting coach. What's nice about it is there will be some familiar faces. And what's nice about it as well, when I was at SAA now, I roomed with David Miller, learned a lot from him. I mean, I was a month his roommate, so we chatted a lot about the game. He's going to be there. So I'm really looking forward to it, and there's at least there's some familiar faces for me to chat to and see what the whole vibe is about but from what i heard i mean south africa's vibe and the atmosphere there is also amazing so i'm really looking forward to it so i think it's going to be awesome and in tennis news international tennis federation the itf president davis haggerty says tennis chiefs plan to adopt the nfl super bowl model by selecting fixed venue cities in advance for their showcase davis and fed cup finals the switch from one of the two finalists hosting the decider is part of a broader strategy aimed at growing the men's and women's international team events. By having clarity and understanding of a, you know, a fixed site, we'll be able to promote it and maximize it. We think it will unlock some revenue, which will be good to help the nations really promote and develop the growth of tennis, which is our mission. So taking the money, not just from the home uh, nation that wins or that, that hosts the event, but being able to distribute to the nations that need the money to, to grow and promote the game. Other options under consideration include a tweak of formats to reduce the length of matches and expanding the top-tier Fed Cup competition to feature 16 nations. Haggerty explains. One of the benefits in Fed Cup, as an example, we have an eight-team world group. We would now be able to go to a 16-team world group, which would be fantastic for the competition. Um, it also, from a Davis Cup perspective, would give us the chance to really be able to know where we're going to be, when we're going to be uh, able to play, which the players don't have now. Finally, with Golf News, Martin Kamer and Annie Els are the star attractions at the Porsche European Open this week on the European Tour. Good weather is expected, which is just as well as the course has been closed so far this week. Nick Dyer reports. The Beckenbauer course at Bad Griesbach now looks superb. No one has played it because the river which skirts some holes had burst its banks, vehicles couldn't get on site to build the village, the intended pro-am was cancelled. But the beauty of having no action so far is that the course is now as good as it possibly could be, though likely to play long and soft. It's an unusual scenario for players to have no practice round for Porrick Harrington. He says the last time was Royal Birkdale in 2008, and that didn't turn out too badly. Kymer's on home soil, happy to be in action this week ahead of the Ryder Cup. His teammate Thomas Peters feels the same. Els is glad to be back after a month off. And Tong Chai Jai defends the title. That's your Sport News this hour.
Well, that's how we wrap it up. I think uh, we're just giving you a breakdown of some of the issues that will be pivotal. But next week we'll be very specific when we do the program uh, to actually look at specific overarching issues that are taking place at uh, the CITES. And it's a very big conference. I know it will be largely covered uh, in our media as well. And even here on Channel Africa, our different um, uh, languages will also be at the CITES. So do stay tuned here on Channel Africa as we give you those particular updates on this very important uh, environmental gap. But remember, African Dialogue comes to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. You're welcome to interact with us on Twitter at Channel Africa 1 or at African Dialogue. We've got a Facebook page simply titled Channel Africa. You can also give us your thoughts. We want to hear from you. So do SMS us. Tell us what you think of our programming on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero, or you can email at info at channelafrica.org. But for me, Benjamin Mushatama, until next time, God bless.